what a wonderful lead in to what I'd like to preach on this morning and uh, maybe for a couple of weeks, maybe even do a little mini-series through the month of November on the life of this man, Joseph. I was greatly impacted last week by the ministry of Pastor Philip DeCourcy, who spoke on Surprised by Sovereignty. If you were with us last Lord's Day, you heard him speak about the life of Joseph, specifically that verse, Genesis 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I thought all week about this life of Joseph, this man of God. And so, this morning, and uh, probably for the next couple of weeks, I don't know exactly how we're going to work it all out. We may even do uh, two principles today, two next Lord's Day, two the next, and maybe two at the end of November, to really talk about eight character qualities from the life of Joseph. If you know from my title... Joseph's character of many colors, that's a takeoff on Joseph's coat of many colors. Even though we'll talk maybe a little bit about that coat and what it might have looked like, I don't want to talk a lot about Joseph's coat, I want to talk about his character. And in fact, I want to talk more than just about Joseph the man, but the God of Joseph. Because really what's behind The story of Joseph in Genesis 39 to 50 is less about Joseph and more about the sovereignty of God, about the providence of God, and about what God was doing to preserve Joseph so that Joseph and his family would be preserved alive and that that family which made up initially the tribes of Israel would then ultimately be out of which the Messiah would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God had a plan and a purpose. And I want us to see from the very beginning stages of this plan in the book of Genesis, specifically in chapters 39 to 50, over the next coming weeks, this life of Joseph, so that we might get to know him a little bit better And that we too might be impacted by his character. His character of many colors. And so I want you, maybe in this November season of time this year, maybe in your own quiet times, to begin reading through Genesis 39 all the way through Genesis 50. Because that particular portion of the book of Genesis deals specifically with Joseph's life with his character, and it might be a wonderful spiritual exercise for you to read through at your leisure about this man as I begin to introduce him to you this morning. Some of you know his life very well. Some of you, maybe if you're younger or maybe new to the Lord, new to the church, you might not have ever heard about Joseph. You might not have ever been in a Sunday school class where you saw a picture of this man with a multicolored coat, and you may not know much about him at all. And so I want to introduce him to you, specifically his character and his works, so that you could thank the God of Joseph, because he's your God too. And so if you will, as a preamble for looking at least at the first couple of character qualities in his life, instead of just going to Genesis 39, I want you to go with me to Genesis 37. 
Genesis 37. For really, the bulk of the story, at least as its foundation stones, we look in chapter 37 to get our bearings about this man, Joseph, and his family. In Genesis 37, the Bible notes for us that Joseph was a shepherd boy of 17 years of age. His father, Jacob, loved him very much. In fact, as we read this morning from Genesis 37, you'll see how he loved Joseph more than all of his other sons, which is not necessarily a good thing. And we'll read about that, and we'll read about this phenomenal coat that he wore. As I said, this particular coat, as you see it in the Sunday school books, may often look something like this. It was a coat long and flowing as a robe, even sometimes translated in our Bibles as a robe of many colors, not just a coat of many colors. But it's probably true, even though the Hebrew word is a bit obscure, it's only used one other place, by the way, in the Old Testament, and we don't get much help there. But this particular coat or tunic or robe was probably not multicolored in terms of its entirety, but it was probably in its long sleeves colored at the sleeve length and probably either around the waist or maybe at the bottom. It was probably white predominantly in color and probably had other colors at the sleeve and at the bottom and it probably signified some kind of royalty, uh, some kind of nobility. And it may be that Joseph's father Jacob, who's also called Israel in our story, gave him that coat because it was a way to express his thoughts, his love for him, and maybe even a desire for the father to look upon the son and to see him one day have that very nobility. We don't know. We aren't told a lot of details about the coat itself, other than you'll find fascinating, as I have, that the garments upon Joseph come back time and time again, not just this one. And so, we pick up the narrative in Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel, that's another name for Jacob, renamed by God, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe or a coat of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now it's interesting as we stop there, even though we'll read, I think, probably the entirety of this chapter, that his brothers were not too thrilled about their brother Joseph. Not at all. They didn't like his robe. They didn't like the person who was wearing it. They didn't like him because they envied Joseph. Not only I suppose because of the coat, but also maybe because it represented the opulent, the noble, a king's son, 
Uh, maybe someone who they felt uh, didn't need to work for a living because he was thought of as royalty or a favored son. They probably wore garments as shepherds that were obviously very different than his. Shorter because they had to carry around wandering sheep. They obviously realized that he wasn't going to be a part of them and their work and they resented him. They resented him greatly. And when Jacob gave Joseph this kind of coat, I suppose we could say that he was in effect sharing with him or declaring about him that Joseph might be exempt from the normal work day, the normal shepherding tasks and the duties of his brothers. And maybe he was even declaring the possibility that Joseph, as the favored son, would be the one because of the coat he was wearing and the lavish love that his father was showing upon him that he was the one who was ultimately going to receive the inheritance and how it might be doled out. They didn't like him at all. His brothers probably in one sense feared him and in another sense very much despised him. And so what does the Bible say? as we continue to read in Genesis 37 about Joseph. Well, it says in verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now that's probably not a way to endear yourself to your brothers. Verse 8, his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Clearly they understood the implication, right? Of what this particular dream might have meant. Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars... Think of that, 11 stars, 11 brothers were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So they spoke derisively about him, you dreamer. They didn't like his words. They didn't like his person. They were jealous of him. They were envious of him. And three times it says they hated him. They despised him. They could not speak peacefully to him. And of course, if you know anything about the story, you know that from verse 12 on, Joseph gets in a lot of trouble by these brothers. Verse 12, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. This was a business venture, family business, keeping the flock, and there needed to be a supervisor. And because Jacob loved his son Joseph and undoubtedly trusted him and saw him as somewhat of a supervisor, Although we might say this was an inadvertent setup, he asked Joseph 
go and find out about your brothers, about their welfare, about our business, and come back and give me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And here's where the intrigue really begins. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, that is the brothers. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to do what? To kill him. You see, the envy, the hatred, the rage was at its fever pitch. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Now, if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern culture, to say nothing of today, the idea of conspiring to kill your own brother, the brother of your own loins, a member of the clan, this is unthinkable. But their rage is so hot, white hot, that they want to kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Just see all of this as dripping with sarcasm. But when Reuben, that's the firstborn, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands. Maybe it was something like this. Reuben was some distance away. Maybe he wasn't a part of the first kind of conspiracy. And maybe when they, he saw some kind of commotion in the distance, he ran to see what was happening, and he saw what they were planning on doing, and he grabbed Joseph out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And you would assume that almost immediately the eldest son, the one presumably in charge, would want to say in noble terms, not our brother. How could this be done? It is not to be done. This would be heinous to us. And at least in part, that might have been what he was thinking. But in verse 22, the Bible says, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. And here's even his own weakness. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Maybe that's what he was thinking. We'll just put him in the pit. By the way, this pit was probably a waterless cistern. We'll read that in a moment. And maybe Reuben's thinking something like this. Because of their white-hot rage at the moment, I'll do my best to dispel their anger and their rage, and I'll agree if we will shed no blood, his blood, we'll put him in the pit, and at some point later, I'll come back surreptitiously, and I'll be able to rescue him out of the cistern, right? We don't know. Exactly. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. That's how we know it was probably a waterless cistern. Verse 25, Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Later, we're told they're Midianites with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. 
Then Judah said to his brothers, this is another one of the brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Now we're talking about extortion, as it were. At least by killing him, we'll get nothing for him. Let's kill him, or if we can't do that, let's at least sell him, because if we kill him, we can't get any money. But if we sell him, we'll get a lot of money. You see the greed coming through? Come, verse 27, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And again, someone might say, well, that's that's because of his noble pedigree. That's because he doesn't want anything to harm the boy. Maybe so, maybe not. We already know that all of the brothers had some kind of antipathy, some kind of rage, some kind of anger for him. Uh, Maybe they're just really trying to compromise, not to do the worst thing, but at least to get something for him, which is not the best thing, right? And so what do they do? Well, his brothers listened to Judah. Verse 28, Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. That will be interesting as we go along. 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit, maybe because he thought he'd been able to get them to agree, right? Don't take him, don't rustle him up, don't throw him down here, don't kill him. But at least we'll put him in the pit and I'll come back at some point when they're not looking. And apparently he did and he returned to the pit and he saw that Joseph was not in the pit. And as that ancient Near Eastern culture did when they were themselves forlorn in a major way, it says he tore his clothes. In other words, no! What's happened? He's now in... Utter chaos in his mind. Verse 30. And he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. And I, where shall I go? In other words, if something tragic has happened to him, we're all goners. Then they took Joseph's robe. And here's the conspiracy. And slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. They're just lying. They're trying to cover their tracks. Verse 33, And he identified it and said, That is Jacob the father. It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. That's what the brothers are saying. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Jacob says... And they don't even try to correct their dad. He spins a scenario in his own mind, and you can see them all with their hands folded. Yes, yes, it's true. This terrible animal has come and devoured him. Then Jacob, verse 34, tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Isn't that tragic, false comfort that you're giving somebody when you know the truth? But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, the grave, to my son, because that's where he is. And I'll go down mourning. In other words, all the rest of my life I'll be in mourning because my son, my favorite son, Joseph, has died. Thus his father wept for him. That too will be important as we go along. Verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, 
and officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is an amazing story. They stripped Joseph of his coat, presumably because by throwing his coat away, they would prevent his dreams from coming true. It would allow them to say, we'll never bow down and worship him. But instead of killing him, they threw him into a pit. They left him for dead. And then when they saw the nomads, at least they could say, we could sell him as a slave. And of course, I wonder, what did they ever do with that money? Blood money. What did they do with it? How did they spend it? And every time you took a shekel out of your pocket and paid for something, were you thinking of what you'd done to your brother? Well, we pick up the story in chapter 39. Remember I said Joseph was about 17. We don't know exactly how much time has passed, but by the time he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, probably somewhere around 10 years have gone by. So maybe we're in the three to five to eight year time frame. So somewhere between the ages of 17 and 27, Joseph is now a slave in a foreign land. And what I want you to see is that although Joseph has been stripped of his family and he's been stripped of his freedom and even stripped of his coat, he has not been stripped of his character. Not at all. Because there is something marvelous about this character And this is what we ought to learn. And for the first of those eight, and probably for just two this morning, I want you to see that Joseph worshipped the source of true prosperity. That's the first of these character qualities that I want you to see from his life. Joseph worshipped the source of true prosperity. Notice this. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, and Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now, a word about Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. We don't know exactly, but we would assume that this person would be like what we might say today as the head of the secret service. The one who was in charge of caring for Pharaoh, his person, his court. They were his bodyguards. And he's apparently the captain of the guard. And that would have made him probably somewhat wealthy. And so he was brought down here as a slave by the Midianites. And there he was purchased. And according to verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. So much so... But the rest of that verse says, and he became a what? A successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. And that's so interesting because the Egyptian, worshiping the gods that he does, is actually seeing Yahweh God, the Lord, the true God. And he recognizes that this God, the God of the Israelites, the God of Jacob, is in fact bringing Joseph to a place of being successful and finding favor. Even this man saw such a thing. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. 
Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, that is amazing. I mean, there's, there's an amazing God at work through a very unique man, a young man, even a man young people like you should aspire to be. And it says the reason why he was successful was because the Lord was with him. In other words, Joseph worshipped the source of true prosperity. You see all the times this idea of success is mentioned, prospering, it was because of the Lord. The Lord was with him. The Lord caused all that he did. You see, he made him overseer in the house because in all that he had, even Potiphar, it was blessed by the Lord. No wonder Potiphar wanted Joseph around, right? Because I've... I've noticed, it's been obvious, like the nose on my face, that this man Joseph and whoever his God is, is causing everything that I'm doing to prosper. I like him around. All of the blessing from his God to him is splashing over onto me. This is good. I like this. In fact, even a little later, look at verses 21 and 23 of this chapter. Says it again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Here's the principle. Joseph understood where true prosperity comes from. And it comes from God himself. Are you trying to pursue riches? Honor? You say, well, not more than I need or not more than I want, but yes. Let me ask you, do you worship the source of true prosperity? Do you do what you do in your business, in your line of work, for the making of bread for your table? Do you worship the source of true prosperity? Are you seeking to be successful and are you doing so because you know it's the Lord and the Lord alone that grants anybody success? Doesn't the proverb say that it's the Lord who grants all wealth? Doesn't the Lord orchestrate all the events of the world? Even though Joseph, the dreamer, the, the, the coat of many colors, and now all that's happened to him, including this ghastly kind of conspiracy by his brothers, and now sold into slavery into a foreign land where he's been stripped of his family and all of his freedom, and yet, somehow, in this life, he knew God well enough to know that God loved him. It says steadfast love there in verse 21, that God loved him, that he cared for him, that he was behind him, that somehow Joseph had in his vertical relationship with God a knowledge of and a comfort in the God who was in charge of his life. And God was going to take care of him. No matter what the circumstances were. Because he worshipped the source of true prosperity. He was successful because the Lord wanted him to be successful. Do you want to be successful? Know the God 
who allows success. That's it. What his, what his brothers could not see, the unbelieving Potiphar could see that the Lord was with Joseph. I mean, do you understand that? I mean, here his brothers, who were supposedly serving the same God, were unable to see, unwilling to see, an unbelieving Potiphar saw it very well and said, I'm not going to touch him. He has charge of everything in my house. Save my wife. Everything. And I'm being blessed as a result. We might say it like this. Joseph recognized that his success and prosperity were directly related to his knowledge of God. His intimacy with God. His relationship with God. Nehemiah understood that. It says in Nehemiah 2.20, The God of heaven... This is Nehemiah talking. The God of heaven will give us success. Why? Because he knew him. Because he knew what God wanted. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. It gives you confidence, doesn't it? When you worship the source of true prosperity. Job declared, He frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. See that? The Apostle Paul said, I planted... Apollos watered, but what? God causes the growth. God is the one who is in charge of anybody's success. Even Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. You see, the principle that God wants you and me to learn out of Joseph's life, this first principle is that he understood, he acknowledged, he knew, he lived out the reality that he was worshiping the God of true prosperity. He knew it. And as I've said before, so many people are climbing the ladder of success only to find out that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. It's the kind of success that you are attempting to climb through your own efforts and by your own style and without regard to your relationship with God and that, if you do so, will result in utter failure. But if you do it God's way, through your relationship to Him, submitting to Him, worshiping the source of true prosperity, acknowledging, God, you own it all, you're in charge, I'm at your bidding, you're not at mine, I want neither... Poverty nor riches. I just want to serve you. Because I know you're the only one who can prosper my hand. My hand is worthless without you. Help me, Lord. Now, what did all of this worshiping of this God of true prosperity get him? Well, something quite unexpected. I mean, you'd almost want to say, this man loved God so much that God never let anything wrong happen to him in his life. That, that's the way it works, right? I mean, you love God, you serve God, you obey God, you want to do everything for God, and you look at this hand and say, any success I have is as a result of God's hand, and so, because I'm serving Yahweh God, everything's going to turn out peachy keen in my life. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Look at verse 6. So he left all in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form 
and appearance. Now, why does Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, why, why does he say something like that? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense, right? Well, it adds color to the story, because what happens next? Verse 7, And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Go to bed with me. Verse 8, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master, Potiphar, has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except whom? You, his wife. Because you are his wife. Implied, you're not mine. You're his. How then, listen to this, how then can I do this great wickedness, this immorality, and sin against God? You know what I call that? That's that second outline point. He withstood temptation with divine accountability. Why do I call it divine accountability? I call it divine accountability because there apparently was no external or alien accountability in Joseph's life, right? He was a foreigner. He was probably the only Hebrew in the house. All the rest were these Egyptians. So he probably didn't have anybody coming alongside him and saying, Joseph, how are you doing? I want to hold you accountable. How are you doing it in the area of sexual temptation? Everything okay? Are you falling to temptation? You know, we need those kinds of people in our lives. But Joseph didn't have that. He was in a foreign land. He didn't have the kind of accountability external to himself, outside of himself, alien to himself, that he needed to rely upon. And we do need others in the body of Christ to ask those accountability questions. But what if you don't get it? What if you don't have it? How do you live? How do you withstand sexual temptation? Are you just going to say, well, you know, I, I fell to it because nobody was holding me accountable. I mean, I didn't want to do it. But nobody was asking me the, the diagnostic questions. How are you doing in your life? Are, are you withstanding the, the sexual temptation of, of these women around you? Well, see, since I didn't have those questions being asked of me, I fell. That's not Joseph. He had the kind of divine accountability, so much so that he says this, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against whom? God. He must have had somehow... In his mind, such a relationship with God, such a sensitivity to his relationship with God, that, is, that as she tempted him, and by the way, the text is going to go on to say, how many days did she tempt him? Day after day. He had to withstand that temptation day after day. And apparently he had such sensitivity in his relationship with God that he was saying to himself day after day, God help me. God don't let this happen. She's not mine. She's not my wife. I shouldn't touch her. I shouldn't think about her. And even though, Lord, she's coming on to me and she's trying to make me lie with her, I won't do it. I mean, this, this is a wonderful principle. Now, remember, the principle of the whole story of Genesis 37 and the 39 to 50, the whole story is about the sovereignty of God. It's about the protecting hand of God. It's about the providence of God. And guess what? Joseph is experiencing this providence of God where God is helping him. God is protecting him. 
And you know that kind of principle for me is something like this. Even though I don't have any external accountability that might be there to say, I'm asking you these questions, I asked you yesterday, and I'm going to ask you tomorrow, I need to have the kind of sensitivity in my relationship with God that even if nobody ever asks me a question about temptation, my answer is still this. God, I love you, I want to obey you, I fear you, and I don't want to do anything that brings a reproach in my life before you. That's what I call divine accountability. I heard John MacArthur say one time, and I think it's very true. You can have external accountability partners, and they have their place, and they're important. I would even say crucial. I think that's what the body of Christ needs. I think that's what we, as the local expression of that body, need from each other. The one-anothering of the body of Christ, and we need to ask those questions. And I would not in any way downplay that at all. But I heard John MacArthur say one time, and I think it's true. Nobody can hold my mind accountable 24-7 can't be done because I can still think thoughts that are wrong I can still be tempted to sin even sexual sin in my mind where nobody else can get in so how do you do it and it always starts there doesn't it it always starts with your thoughts that's always the place that it begins remember James 1 it's the imagination that gives birth to sin how do you how do you cut Right to the heart of the matter, you deal with your mind first. And you say in your mind, like Joseph, I will not sin against God in this way because I have such a sensitivity of my relationship to Him. I know Him to the degree that I fear Him and that I will not dishonor Him. I will not dishonor the name of my God, even in a foreign land, even if nobody was around, even if everybody was out of the house, even if she's been tempting me day after day. He wanted to be faithful to his master, his ultimate master. And he wanted, to, he wanted to, to be answerable to his human master, even though he wasn't a believer in Yahweh God. But he wanted to honor him nonetheless. He wanted to be faithful to his God. One writer says it this way, It seemed essential to Joseph to stand well with his master's wife. To please her would secure his advancement. To cross her would make her his foe. By succumbing, he would have opportunity for further advancement and recognition. By refusing, he would incur the wrath of a woman without moral standard. And that's exactly what happened. He said no, and he was punished for it. You say, that's not right. That's not fair. I mean, the guy did the right thing. We should be applauding him. And yes, we should. But God doesn't always work in the way that we assume. Because God had a plan. And you see, this is, this is the story not about Joseph, but about God. You see? It's what God was doing to move him even through the circumstances that looked like it was going against him. And it was to a place where he went from the pit to Potiphar to the palace. Do You see? And it apparently couldn't have gone any other way other than the way God planned it. We wouldn't want it to. We don't see it on this side of those events, but when we see it afterwards, we praise God for it. How many times have you heard somebody say, look, I would never have wanted to go through this, but now that I've gone through this, I can see the hand of God. Young people, as we close, young people, listen to this. While this is a story about God, this is also a story about a man, a young man, who said no to sexual sin. Let that be a lesson to you especially. If you don't want to fall, my friends, 
Don't walk where it's slippery. Don't give yourself to those temptations day after day because it says that. Here's the story. Verse 10, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. He was refusing to be with her because he had such a strong, divine accountability. And where did that get him? Verse 11. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and here's, here's how the narrator gives it to us, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, what's that supposed to conjure up in your mind? He had opportunity. He had time. He had access. Nobody else is around. Put yourself in the same scenario. What would you do? How would you respond? Nobody's around. Nobody's in the house. She's tempting me day after day. Lord, how, how could you not see me falling to this? It was day after day. You're, you're giving me a temptation that's too much for me to bear. Except what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. No testing has overtaken you, but such as is common. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Right? She was cunning. Verse 12. She caught him by his garment. Notice that. Boy, Joseph and his garments. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. I mean, she's just right out front now. Maybe it was innuendo before, but it's just... It's just right out front now. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Yes, sir, Rebob. Get out of there. Sexual sin, if it's lurking for you, if it's now frontal, if it's now direct, run away. Smash the television if you need to. Do whatever you must, but get out. Whatever the cost, whatever the circumstances, even if you're thrown into the most difficult of circumstances, even if it's negative, who's in control? God is. And as soon as she saw that he'd left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. That may be something like, he's trying to make sport of me. She's trying to take advantage of me. Now she plays the race card. Look at what this Hebrew has done. He came in to lie with me, trying to attach opposite motives than Joseph had. And I cried out with a loud voice, Oh, no! And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Now that is a lie. That is a bald-faced lie. That is not true. God, come into that situation, make it right. Would we, even if we did the right thing in the first place, doubt God, question God in the second place? If we were to say, I did what you asked. I didn't fall to it. Now, the circumstances are not to my liking. Why did you do this to me? Does it shatter his faith? No. She laid his garment up beside her until his master came home. 
And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Do you remember the brothers? What was their anger doing? Kindling. You know, for as wonderful as this young guy is, he's got a lot of people that that are really mad at him. You know, that's probably another lesson in and of itself. If you do what is right, you'll what? Suffer. You do what is right, you're going to suffer. Every person who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer, what does Paul say? Persecution. Yes, sir. It could happen. His anger was kindled. Verse 20, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Please do not read over that too lightly. Steadfast love. Covenant love. Committed love. That love doesn't always guarantee that all your life will be hearts and flowers. But it does guarantee that if God loves me, who can be what? Against me. He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. That's, that's, that's an amazing reality. I mean, everywhere this guy goes, right? In his own family. And now here, in this Egyptian house of Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard, and now in the prison, he's three for three. You say, well, I wouldn't want to be in there. Well, look, he's blooming where he's planted. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Even these God-rejecting, polytheistic God-worshippers were realizing there's, there's something about this young man. And, and, and whatever it is, that God that he serves, whoever he is, every time I see Joseph... I see blessing. Boy, that, that ought to be what it's said of us, right? Wherever I see you, I see God blessing. This is, this is amazing. Young people, what you are now is in all probability what you will be. So as a 17-year-old, or as a 22-year-old, or as a 28-year-old, or as a 35-year-old, If you can trust God, and if you can withstand sexual temptation with divine accountability, no doubt what you've gone through, and successfully so, is what in all probability you'll be able to be blessed in for the rest of your life. Save your virginity now. Now. And what you are now will in all likelihood be what you could trust God for and thank God for when that spouse comes and when you're blessed beyond measure and the beauty of marriage. Think about that. Solomon said, Rejoice, young man, 
during your childhood, Ecclesiastes 11.9, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. If you just follow the dictates of your own heart, if you just follow the lust of your own eyes, yeah, you can do that. But God will bring you to judgment for all those days. Numbers 32, 23b says, You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Divine accountability. You may have a lot of people in your life and praise God for them. But when they're not around and when nobody's looking, who are you? Who are you when nobody's looking? That's a real test of character. And Joseph had it. I mean, he ran right out of his garment. He no doubt knew because he was a smart man. He was a handsome man. And he knew what the implications were. And he knew invariably what was going to happen. And he trusted God. And he withstood temptation with divine accountability. And he worshipped the source of true prosperity because he loved God and he trusted God. And ultimately, even if there were days of sadness, he would believe God for the long haul. And oh, how he was blessed. And we'll see that more in the days to come. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, as we think about this life of Joseph, we move past him so quickly to Joseph's God because none of this character that we're talking about from his life would be possible at all if it were not for you. Let us not emphasize the quality of this man apart from the grace that you bestowed upon him. We're here to worship you. And we're here to thank you that if we do worship the source of true prosperity and if we do withstand sexual temptation with divine accountability, it is because you have brought us protectively to that place. Even if circumstantially our lives go in reverse or seem so, if our lives move in a shockingly different direction, we can still trust you because we've seen the precedent of that trust that you have a steadfast love for us. And even if we can't understand, why am I in this position? Why am I suffering? Why is there persecution? Why are these things in my life? Well, it could be because you're righteous, because you're holy, because God is giving you a series of tests to prove your character and to glorify himself in and through that character. Oh, may it be so, Father. And may, as we learn other principles of the character of this man's life, may it impact us greatly as we're surprised by your sovereignty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.